Welcome to the History of the Brave and Cowardly, Episode 1, Jungle Warriors. So jungle combat has always been different. How could it not be? How could combat in trees, in tropical climates, with animals all around you, not be different than the standard countryside combat we are familiar with? And during no other war pre-1941 was jungle combat ever engaged in on such a large and industrialized scale as it was during the Asian theater of World War II. In his book, World War II Jungle Warfare Tactics, Dr. Stephen Bull opens with the following line, quote, The night sounds in the jungle compromise a cacophony of strange and eerie grunts, groans, whistles, hisses, and growls from every sort of animal which takes the opportunity of night to replenish its stomach. To pick out of all the sounds the approach of the enemy, you must be listening, looking, and smelling, for all the senses had to be alerted. That is a quote from British Captain Peter Grant, and I think it perfectly encapsulates the jungle combat of World War II as seen from both sides, created for soldiers during World War II. First of all, our visibility in fields of fire. The jungle is, of course, dense. The leaves make the light dance around, and every single flutter can seem like movement and marking anything is impossible. So what this does is establish issues in defense, as guardsmen may not only randomly shoot at an enemy that turns out to just be a tree, which of course not only alerts the enemy to their location, but also creates panic within their own ranks, but it also makes fields of fire extremely difficult for a commander to establish. Essentially what a field of fire is, is when a commander points at two locations and tells a soldier to guard that area and make sure no enemy breaks through. When there's a billion trees in front of you, it's pretty difficult to establish which two your commander is talking about. Also, in the jungle, troops can use their environment to their advantage, which makes attacking even more difficult. If your defender is covered in branches and trees and their gun blends in with all the sticks on the ground, then it's going to be extremely difficult for an attacker to see them until they're right on top of them. It also makes tanks one of the Allies' greatest technological advantage over the Japanese, almost completely nullified due to the jungle, as moving through hard trees is nearly impossible without clearing a path, which requires ground labor the Allies simply did not have time to do. The second major restriction that Stephen Bull highlights is remoteness and lack of transport. I think this is best exemplified in the book Tales by Japanese Soldiers by Kazuyo Tamayama in John Nalani. In this book, 2nd Lieutenant Shuturo Yoshida, in his chapter titled Water Supply to Soldiers, highlights that the water supply in Southeast Asia is so brutal to come by that he was a part of a special water supply unit in order to find clean sources in defensive areas. As he says, quote, it was very difficult to find water. If we tried to just add a platoon or company to a village well, it nearly always ran dry and the roads and shipping were never good enough to guarantee supply from Singapore. It was so bad that on the Allies' side, doctors frequently encouraged troops to fill every container they possibly could with water if they had the chance, as well as Allied doctrine telling their soldiers how to gain water from plants and roots. Transport was a major issue, as thousands of troops frequently starved to death on the front lines, as their airlines were not able to supply drop them anything and they starved to death. The third major restriction that the jungle environment gave to their troops was simply the tropical climate. Illnesses, bugs, and the overall wetness took its toll on troops, 
in fact, 1.4 million out of the 2.1 million Japanese military deaths were due to illness and disease. There is one myth, however, that most people have about jungle combat during World War II that I must bust before I continue, because its role is imperative. No jungle, no matter how thick, was impenetrable to the right group of soldiers. One aspect of combat in the Pacific theater of World War II that cannot be ignored is the racial aspect. These two countries, as in the United States and Japan, held strong racial prejudices against one another. The Japanese believed, quote, weak-spirited Westerners regarded the jungle as impenetrable, while the Japanese would use this in order to outmaneuver them, unquote. This is stated by Dr. Stephen Bull in his book. Dan Carlin also highlights the racial aspect in episode 4 of his podcast series, Hardcore History, A Supernova in the East, in which he describes a fake story created by the U.S. government that they contributed to a Doolittle pilot as his last words before his beheading, in which he says, quote, We won't end it until your dirty little empire is wiped out the face of the earth, unquote. This, of course, referring to the Japanese empire. I would like to state that throughout this podcast, I will be using many first-person sources from allied sources. These will be diaries, as well as several photographs. Now, in these texts, frequently Americans and Australians will use racial slurs against the Japanese. In that case, I will be replacing the word, which I do assume you know, with the word Japanese. So, when I say that word throughout this podcast, please know the true words that these Americans and Australians are speaking in the racial undertones and hatreds that they embody. So now let's begin the actual analysis of combat during World War II undertaken by the three major powers, beginning with the Japanese, namely their practice and preparedness prior to the beginning of World War II in Asia. So now, as David Norton states in his master thesis, Jungle Blitzkrieg, The Battle for Singapore, the Japanese had, quote, well-trained engineers, which allowed them to push through any broken bridges that the British had frantically tried to destroy in front of them in order to slow them down. This is a really key point as far as I'm concerned, because the Japanese had such well-trained engineers who knew what was going to happen, as in the bridges being destroyed, and they were prepared to do so. They were already practicing bridge repairs in Formosa, in fact, which I just find uh, very fascinating myself. They also had a lot of experience fighting in China, as the Japanese invasion of China had been underway for nearly a decade at this point. They were very practiced in jungle maneuvers, especially in southern China, and Japanese troops had been engaging in uh, jungle maneuvers throughout 1941 in order to better prepare for this campaign. This essentially allowed them to take, uh, undertake battalion-wide bounding maneuvers in which uh, battalions would move up next to each other, which ended up just devastating the British lines in Singapore. Another aspect of Japanese tactic doctrine that cannot be ignored is simply their aggressiveness. They had developed complicated feinting and flanking maneuvers that could be miles long. This is highlighted by Dr. Stephen Bull in his book, World War II Jungle Warfare Tactics, in which he says, quote, The mainstay of Japanese tactical doctrine was the primacy of the attack, close combat being endowed with what has been described as mystic virtue. But ultimately, they did have to adapt as an aggressive strategy against enemies who eventually became very adept at defending against these aggressive strategies was not working. In the intelligence bulletins from the Department of Defense in April of 1944, 
I think that's a great example of how they are adapting. In May of 1943, only five sections in the entire intelligence bulletin describes how to counter Japanese defensive tactics, and that is exclusively booby traps and how to react to ambushes. But in April of 1944, almost the entire thing is about how to adapt to Japanese defensive tactics, mainly how the Japanese are more now looking for booby traps set by the United States and the Allies. Uh, and, quote, if a booby trap is discovered, the Japanese search the area thereabouts for others. The first unit passing through the booby trapped area should remove the traps according to enemy instructions. This is kind of showing how the U.S. is now gaining an advantage and now setting the traps for the Japanese. Uh, and the Japanese are now highlighting many times how to adapt to certain U.S. tactics, as well as parachutists, for example. They have entire lists of distances and what to aim for. They highlight aiming for the feet as well as how to effectively patrol and guard against your enemies. The next thing that would be highlighted is the deceptiveness and sneakiness that the Japanese employed very effectively. They were very powerful when it came to psychological warfare, and these are the reasons why. In the book, At the Frontline, Experiences of Australian Soldiers in World War II, um, Private Clement Johnson describes an incident in which, quote, a Japanese lieutenant paid me a visit about half past nine. He came into my tent, but I was awake, saw him come in. He came close to my bed and was just about to pick up my rifle, which I had close to me, when I flew out and grabbed him by the throat, struggled him to the ground, and choked him unconscious. During the fight, he tried to get me with a hand grenade, but I was lucky enough to see it and throw it away before it exploded. This is kind of the tactic that the Japanese would employ, sneaking soldiers into tents, taking out a couple. You're in a platoon of 40 guys, you wake up the next morning, and two of them are dead in their tent, having been butchered. That is very effective when it comes to psychological warfare. This is also talked about in David Norton's master thesis, in which he says, quote, Their tactics were reinforced away from battle to destroy enemy operations towards operations that they believed would cripple enemy leaders, chain command, and morale. There were many tactics that Dr. Stephen Bull highlights in his book when it comes to deception. They would yell out commands in English, send out one or two guys to quickly jump in a box hole. Um, they would cut wires, then wait and assassinate the repairman, booby-trapped, pretty much everything they possibly could, as well as, most famously, their employment of grenades, not only when it came to fake surrendering, or it came to fake death as well. These caused certain groups of allied soldiers to stab any Japanese soldier that they saw on the ground just to ensure that they were not, in fact, dead. Now, I think this kind of deceptiveness and ability to really use stealth in the jungle to their advantage is highlighted as well in the, uh, the tale by Japanese soldiers by Kazuyo Tamayama and John Delaney, in which Corporal Sochi Nakamashumi in his chapter on bonsai charges, highlights how, quote, boots were replaced with soundproof socks, cloth wrapped around anything that could cling, bayonets were shoved into the mud, everything was done to reduce noise and glint. Because this is highlighting how insane they went into preparing for a bonsai charge, because they wanted to catch the enemy by surprise, they wanted to sneak up and then attack them as best they possibly could. In that same book, Captain Dadashiki Suzuki, in his book called, in his chapter, called Night Attack with Bayonet, says, We spread mud from the jungle, all of our bayonets and our body, dulling their color to perfect the reflection of any moonlight. This kind of shows how they're adapting to circumstance, and then their brutality is highlighted later, when he says, quote, We found several 
tents, we advanced and stabbed the few men who were outside. We then entered the main tent and saw a British commander sitting upright with some of his men. Then we shot them. This is the brutal effectiveness of their raids. Just imagine shots going off in the middle of your tent, in the middle of your encampment, and you run and you see your commander dead. That's something that's just going to destroy the morale of your enemies. And that's what they did. They instilled fear and they destroyed morale. Um, in the book, At the Front Lines, Experiences of Australian Soldiers in World War II, you see an air uh, supply member's diary during uh, the Millie Bay campaign in which he says, quote, We heard stories of the fighting that took place here or there. The Japanese had landed, scattered the militia under heavy rain, and we were now, and they were now either building super strong defenses or advancing towards us. We heard it both ways. Everyone was insistent their way was right, and no one knew what was happening. The close quarters combat of the Japanese also really helped with this. In fact, Japanese tactical doctrine highlighted the bayonet charge above all else up until 1945. And oftentimes, the Japanese would engage in things that were not very effective when it came to practical combat, but they were very, very effective when it came to what they were trying to do. Shooting at bamboo was very effective as it would start to pop and it would make noise all around the Allied soldier, even though that bamboo was what was keeping them alive. Uh, the automatic weapon in that case, which was not practical in the jungle, became very effective for the Japanese. Uh, the intelligence bulletins, especially the one in May 1943, very much highlights how they were trying to freak out the enemies um, and use booby traps in order to do certain things. And I think it's also highlighted by how Dr. Stephen Bull ends his book when he says the Allies realized the absolute necessity of jungle training and knowledge to defeat the Japanese who came from a mild, industrialized, and militarized nation that had the advantage of years of training and learning and whose troops had every natural ability to successfully win in jungle combat. Now, that's overall what I believe the Japanese have done right. They were brutally effective when it came to psychological warfare. Overall, they were less industrialized and had far fewer natural resources than the Allies. Ultimately, the war was most likely never going to be won by Japan, but given the circumstance in which they had, they made the most of it. They operated in every way that you would expect a country to operate in that situation. And they did so brutally, and they were able to give the Allies a major fight and a major hassle due to their willingness to put everything on the line in order to win the battle. I think the Australians are kind of overlooked when it comes to combat in World War II and people who took part in it. And I think that's simply because they were dominion of the British Empire. If they had been an independent country at that point, their contribution would be far more noted. It's a little bit similar to the Canadians. Uh, when it comes to the invasion of Normandy, or the Indians when it comes to the Pacific Theater during World War II. Um, and ultimately what the Australians are excelling at, it's defense. You know, money makes the world go around, and defense makes the Australian army tick. The Americans, we were better at attacking, and so were the Japanese. But when it came to defeating an army who had such an aggressive nature, such as the Japanese army, then what ultimately you want is a strong defense. In this case, a strong defense is a good offense. So now in his book, At the Frontline, Experiences of Australian Soldiers During World War II, author Mark Johnson states, quote, This war has so far consisted of 2% fighting and 98% digging. You dig gum pits and holes to sleep in, holes to crawl in if shelled or bombed. 
that's just when you finish everything and you're ordered to move a few new miles and everything begins again. Now, this is a quote from an artillery officer, which I find fascinating because it highlights how cautiously the Australians advanced, but yet how effective it was. Now, Dr. Stephen Bull quickly shows certain things in his book, certain diagrams, which I'll describe to you now, that really highlight the effectiveness of Australian combat and of Australian defense. They basically have six platoons in a circle with three in reserve, and each one of these platoons has dug an entrenchment that's honestly a little bit reflective of World War One. They have crawl trenches, they have gun points, and these things are impenetrable. And ultimately, when you're in a situation like jungle combat, having three platoons that are able to get the rest they need before you advance is honestly something that's very, very, very efficient. Uh, Stephen Bull also highlights how quickly they were in realizing how necessary training was. Uh, the British kind of assumed, oh, the Japanese are going to be easy to defeat. And the Australians took them a bit more seriously. Uh, when it came to arriving in the Burma Theater right before that fell, uh, author Stephen Bull says, quote, the 8th Australian Division embarked on jungle training as soon as they arrived in the theater, unquote. He later goes on to talk about how the commander was called crazy, and ultimately, while the Australians were pushed back, his troops were noted for fighting far higher uh, rate of success and fighting much better than the rest of the Australian forces. Uh, there's even a quote from Winston Churchill himself in which he highlights that the Australians had it right the whole time. The Australians also adapted very, very well when it came to fighting the Japanese. Uh, they kind of copied them when it came to be necessary. Uh Australian military doctrine issued in 1942 says, quote, everything is necessary. One of a hatchet, machete, or knife is definitely essential. So this is kind of highlighting how the Japanese tactics, because they were so effective when it came to causing terror, and especially in the close quarters situation of jungle combat, were adapted by their opponents. And the Australians really, really respected that. But now, just to go back to the training aspect of it, uh, Stephen Bull also highlights that the LHQ Training Center for Jungle Warfare was opened as the first base for Allied jungle training in the entire theater by the Australians. And he talks about how troops, quote, train 12 hours a day, six days a week, culminating in a six-day exercises in which the trainees lived in the jungle off of exclusively personal rations. This kind of highlights that the Australians are the first ones to understand that this war, it's not going to be fought like the European war is being fought. Because obviously in Europe it's being fought either in, you know, eastern, uh, on the eastern front in western Russia where it's cold and brutal. Or later what will happen when the Allies invade France or like the French countryside. This is going to be in the jungle. You need to know how to live in the jungle and you know how to fight and defend in the jungle. And that's ultimately what the Australians were trying to go for and what they ultimately succeeded doing. So now the final power that I'm going to really talk about is the United States. And ultimately coming from the United States myself, that's the country I'm bring the most about. And I'm going to show a little bit of bias towards, of course. But I have to admit, the Americans were very slow to adopt to the new rules of jungle combat. I mean, they have their reasons. Once they get pushed out of the Philippines, there's no longer any obligation to instantly engage in jungle combat. The Australians are obviously under threat in Guinea. But the Australians, they had their own situation going on there. The Americans, they kind of decided to take a slower look at it. 
they build up the navy, they get ready to establish dominance in the Pacific that will then allow them to begin these jungle-based invasions. Uh, the Philippines fell very, very quickly. It's not like they could have done much. The Australians, who, yeah, were better trained, would not have been able to hold it at all anyway. So obviously they do shift to naval focus. But ultimately, despite what Stephen Bull tries to claim in his book, I do not think the U.S. had, quote, a tradition in jungle combat due to their 1916 occupation of the Isthmus of Panama, unquote. I think that's pretty ridiculous. That happened like 40 years earlier, 30 years earlier, part of my math. And it's completely ridiculous to try and say that they were directly related to each other. But in terms of doctrine that the Americans put out, they were very, very slow when it came to jungle combat. They had never actually issued any sort of manual before the war began. And three days after Pearl Harbor, they released a very hastily made bit of doctrine. And what this decided to focus on was the effect of encirclement on enemies and on themselves. They basically had determined that as Bull states, quote, envelopment tactics were thought to be more effective and psychologically powerful in the jungle as opposed to open terrain. So they basically thought, oh, if you encircle an enemy, then you'll break them morally because it's the jungle and they'll be freaked out and vice versa. So basically all of our tactics in the Philippines were stressing not getting encircled, which ultimately does not work when you have an enemy like the Japanese who are more than willing to go right up the gut and just go for your center which is exactly what they did and how they pushed us back very, very quickly. The thing that adapted quickest was American industry. Uh, American troops ended up being the best geared in the entire theater, uh, most notably in uniforms. Uh, the Japanese ultimately stuck with wool throughout most of the war. Um, but the Americans were very quick to move away from wool and leather in favor of better materials because ultimately you want something breathable, yeah, something not too hot that's going to guard you from mosquitoes, and we were ultimately able to develop that type of thing very, very quickly. And our ideas began to improve. Uh, notably, the progress can be seen in September of 1943, where Intelligence Bulletin actually began explaining how to live in the jungle with the issued gear. That was a big part of American doctrine by the end of the war, was not combat in the jungle, it was surviving in the jungle. Um... This success was really highlighted in Field Manual 72-20, Jungle Warfare, which was issued in October of 1944. Uh, this is considered the quintessential piece of American jungle doctrine for the island hopping campaign. Um, most of this is about surviving in the jungle. It's about combating animal threats, how to conduct medicinal operations in the wild, and the best way to maintain your health in the jungle. It also brings in tactics employed by the Japanese for use by the Allies. Uh, it's kind of adapting their tactics. It shows the Allies, as much as they may have hated the Japanese people in a racial terms, ultimately military doctrine, they were able to find some sort of respect for the way that they were operating, and the Allies began developing their own booby traps, kind of adapting to the environment. So overall, I'd say it was American commercialism that saved the day for the United States. As companies were very, very eager to develop the best troops possible and the best gear possible. I mean, obviously, if you're a, uh, a shoe company and you want the American troops to be wearing your boots, that looks pretty damn good on the home front, and those soldiers are going to appreciate it when they come back. So ultimately, this all ended with the Americans having the best jungle survival skills of, of all the combatants, which massively helped them in their endeavors. The Australians, yeah, they were better at defense, but ultimately... Americans were able to survive in small groups, which really, really helped them, especially in the lengthy jungle campaigns they're going to undergo.
during the latter stages of World War II. So overall, the jungle is just a brutal place to fight in. I mean, essentially, you're living in hell. There are trees surrounding you, diseases running rampant, as you're pretty much searching for food and water in any place to dry your clothes. And any wrong step not only might lead you into a booby trap, uh, some hole with a soldier hidden in it, or spikes, or it could lead you into an animal's lair. You might take a wrong step and step on a snake, which would, uh, given my fear of snakes, would be quite terrifying. Um, each power kind of adapted in their own way based off the resources that they had. The Japanese are notable for their incredibly brilliant offensive techniques, especially early in the war, the training they had and the ability to just operate on a large scale in the jungle was truly incredible. They're also known for their valor. Uh, and honestly, their pre-war stuff is what really helped them because they were able to deliver a success of punches that pushed back nations that in every way should have beaten them. I mean, the United States, Australia, and Britain, ultimately, they're richer. They have more resources, but the Japanese, due to everything that they had going for them, were able to succeed in the beginning. The Australians, what they really had was an understanding of training early on. They were able to quickly adapt, quickly begin training, and equipping their troops. Uh, and ultimately, they adapted defensive doctrine that was really able to hold the Japanese off, because obviously the Japanese do not succeed in taking over the entire island of New Guinea. And if they had, who knows what would have happened if they had been able to launch an invasion of Australia. That could have changed the face of the war. But due to Australian training and defensive ideas, they were able to hold them back. And the Americans, the way they were able to adapt the jungle survivability allows their troops such a great advantage because not only do they have way greater manpower and way greater wealth, but when they're able to employ that manpower and wealth for prolonged periods of time, Due to the jungle survivability, that's just something that the Japanese, and I don't think any army in the Pacific could have overcome at that time, because they truly did develop the best equipped and largest army in the whole theater. Um, each nation really adapts in its own way, which I find fascinating. They all have their own advantages and disadvantages, but they all figure out ways to play up their advantages in order to make jungle combat easiest and possible for their own troops. They all have their own successes. But ultimately, in the end, one of those powers ended up in ashes. That concludes episode one of the show. If you are interested in learning more about the history of the brave and the cowardly, a new history podcast about the lives, experiences, and legacies of both great men and weak ones, then be sure to follow the podcast on Spotify at the history of the brave and the cowardly.